Have you ever been in a crowded situation where all around you was intense celebration and yet you felt isolated, alone, sad, sorrowful? That's exactly what we find with Jesus during this period of time in his life. He is entering into Jerusalem for the Passion Week. There is great celebration around him. In fact, they're throwing their garments on the ground and, and palm branches there. He is riding upon a colt coming into the city and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's king, he's Lord. And yet when he comes to look upon the city, it says he begins to weep. What would cause Jesus to weep? As I read through this account, I want you to think through what is taking place and why he would be weeping. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent his two disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, The Lord needs it. So those who went were sent and left and, and found just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. If you think about this picture, it's during the time of Passover. All through the land, people were descending to Jerusalem. Or we should really say ascending, because Jerusalem was above all other places. People are coming, probably, and it's estimated, Two million people will be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate the Passover. Jesus is traveling the Jericho Road, coming up to Jerusalem, passing Bethany, where he has very dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Just two weeks before this, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And since that time, there's been a great crowd following Jesus. Josephus, who's a Jewish scholar, 
and has, to, to me, I respect him very much, estimates that Jesus could have had 200,000 people celebrating with him on this trip into Jerusalem. That, that number is staggering. And so this intense celebration all around him and coming into Jerusalem, looking upon the city, is when he makes these comments. Why would Jesus weep over the city? There are times in Scripture where you read about Jesus having compassion. The very shortest verse in the Bible is when it says Jesus wept. This was when, just before Lazarus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says that he saw their sorrow and he wept. But that word... Uh, for weeping was a tearfulness, a, a sadness, a crying. But this word is different. In the, in the Greek language, this means he was, in this situation, sobbing. His chest was heaving. He was wrenched with pain. It was an uncontrollable sobbing that he had. Why was he weeping? Why would Jesus, when everyone around him is celebrating him as King and Messiah and saying, Hosanna, why would he be weeping? And I'd like this morning just to bring four reasons, I think, from this passage in the Gospels that would give some insight into why he's weeping. There are probably many more, but the ones that I see. First of all, Jesus is weeping for the physical suffering of his people. It says when he looks on the city, and the, the, the city is a physical structure, but the, the city is filled with people. And these are people that he loves. The city, as he approaches it, is filled with people who have pain. They are suffering. And their poverty, their oppression from the Romans, oppression from the rich, the religious, all of these people, everywhere you look, you'll see those blind, beggars, lame, the sick, the diseased, the marginalized, many who have been demon-possessed, lepers, widows, orphans, outcasts. During this time in Jerusalem, everywhere you looked, you saw pain. And this is what he felt. You know, I think a lot of times pain in people's lives is something very distant to us. I was on Facebook, I think probably a couple, three weeks ago, and someone had made a comment. I didn't even know who it was, but they had made a comment. Don't you think this coronavirus is just really over-exaggerated? People making a big deal about something that's not that big. And I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I just wrote down, unless it's you. Or unless it's your mother or father or sister or brother. Yeah, it's overrated. It's blown out of proportion. But when things start to come home and become personal, it is a big deal. And one of the things about Jesus is that he, like no other person in all of history, was able to see and feel and experience the pain and the suffering of the people he's loved. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So Jesus 
had the capacity and had the experience where he has felt every pain, experienced every loss, suffered in every way that humans will suffer. I think for most of us, that is so far from our ability to do. You know, when I was younger, I, I would look at people that would be in a neck brace, and I, and I would think, they're just overdoing this. They want sympathy. I mean, I would never say that, but I would think that. And then something happened to me in 1997. I got in a car accident, and I was in a neck brace for six months. And after the six months, I had surgery, and I was in a neck brace for another six weeks. And then for the next several years, I'd have headaches every day of my life. And then you fast forward 20 years later, I'm having another neck surgery. I can tell you this, that when I see a person in a neck brace, I don't think, oh, they're just milking this for all they're worth or they're feeling sorry for themselves. I feel like going up and having a conversation with, I feel your pain. That's one very little experience. I think back to the years that followed that experience with my neck of, of different things that God brought into my life in physical suffering. And sometimes I'd wonder, God, what are you doing? What is all this about? But I think as a shepherd, as someone who ministers to people and really needs to care for people, I really had no idea how people felt. And that's one of the most amazing things about Jesus. Jesus sees it. Jesus feels it. Jesus cares about every single pain that he sees in our culture and in our world. That's an incredible thought. He has a greater sensitivity. He has a greater knowledge. He has a greater capacity to do that. And so I think that his uncontrollable heaving, his grieving, his sobbing is something that would be very hard for us to experience because we're still distant from a lot of other people's pain. All of this pain is a consequence of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that it is that person that committed a sin and paying the, the consequence of that, but it's the sin that's in the world. And, and the sin that's in the world is, is almost like a cyclone going through town. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't care about who it affects. When, when sin is in one person's life, it affects other people's lives. It just it runs rampant throughout all of society. And we see the results of that. And, and Jesus, as he comes into the city and sees their physical suffering, their physical pain, the oppression on these people, genuinely cares and genuinely weeps for them. Secondly, Jesus weeps because of their spiritual blindness and their unbelief. So much is so clear. In Luke 19, verse 42, he says it this way. He says, if you knew the day, what would bring peace? But now is hidden from your eyes. In other words, you're blind. You don't see it. In verse 44 of what we read, it says, you did not recognize the time when God visited you. If you go back to the first chapter of Luke and, and Zechariah speaks about this, the visitation of God. In other words, the, the time has come and everything is lined up. And all through the text that I read earlier, you're seeing prophecy fulfilled. 
You go back to Zechariah, you go back to Isaiah, you go back all the way through the Old Testament, and everything's lining up, everything's lining up, and everything is being fulfilled. The Messiah is coming, he's coming to rule and to reign, to set up his kingdom, and they don't see it. They don't see it. All of this over hundreds of years has been prophesied, and they don't see it, and they don't believe it. You know, when I think about this, the Pharisees should have known beyond all people, and yet they were too proud. The common people were caught up in wanting a Messiah that would free them from the Romans, which was a very temporal, earthly freedom or, or liberty. But God was working in such great, much greater ways. They did not see it. You know, in my study, I have a, a Bev Doolittle painting. And if you know anything about Bev Doolittle, she's like some of the other artists that will uh, paint a, in, in her case, Western pictures. But she paints this picture, and there's a picture in the picture, but you can't see it. Unless you step back and you look, and it takes a while. You've got to focus. You've got to look. But there's a picture in the picture. And this is, for the Jews, the picture was the Messiah. All of these things that are happening right now are fulfillments of prophecy, and they did not see it. And I think that this is why Jesus is so grieved, is because everything is, is he's tried to make it so clear, and he's made it so clear, but they're not seeing it. Have you heard the expression before seeing is believing? I've used that a lot too. But you know that it, what's different about the scripture and about what Jesus, he doesn't say seeing is believing. What he's saying is believing is seeing. Believing precedes seeing. Paul talks about this in, in the second chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, when he says, the natural person does not perceive the things of God. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. When we have faith, God wipes away the scales from our eyes and allows us to really see what he's doing. But what, what is happening, this is, this is Jesus. This is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the one that they've been talking about, and they don't see it. He's right in front of them. And so he has great sadness as he watches this. They reject him. They don't see him. The third reason that I see that he's weeping He's weeping for what he sees is going to happen in 40 years. Because in 70 AD, the Romans would sack Jerusalem. In verse 43, it says, For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children, your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Part of his weeping and sobbing is because he can see into the future, just like he's God. He can see into the past. He can see into every human heart. He knows everything that's going on. And he knows in this city, because they have been blinded and they're, they're filled with unbelief, will come under the judgment of God. Now this is what we would say is a national judgment. In other words, uh, Israel, God's people as a nation, is being judged by God for their persistent 
unbelief and their consistent rejection of God reaching out. This has happened to them happened to them in 722 when the northern tribes were carried off to Assyria. It happened again in 586 when the southern tribes were carried off to Babylon. That God has used secular nations to bring discipline and judgment to his people to correct them and turn, turn them back. And again, we find this is what takes place. So what did happen 40 years later? The Jews revolted in AD 66 against Rome. So the Romans came, they built a barricade, a siege around the city, they surrounded it. They fought with them. The Jews were fighting back. They, they leveled it to the ground. They burned the city. And in AD 70, they completely wiped out the people. It's estimated that 1.1 million people, men, women, children, were slaughtered. 100,000 other people were taken off into captivity. Men were taken off to the games in Rome to be gladiators. But they completely decimated and leveled the city. All but the Western Wall, which still stands today. Why would a loving God allow that? I think that's a really good question. Why would a loving God allow that to happen to people he loved? Because God is also a just God. And God cannot be just if he allows sin to continue on. And this is the judgment that came. And the judgment was upon sin. Just as God's judgment will come upon all of the earth. When you ask about how could, how could there be a hell? How could there be a place of torment like that? Well, God created hell for Satan and his angels because he must punish sin. If God's going to be just and God's going to be holy and he's going to be true and he's going to be loving, the contrast of his loving righteousness and truth will be his hatred of evil and his punishment of evil. But God also provided a way of deliverance. And that's, the, to me, the great unfolding story of the Bible of redemption and of salvation that he has accomplished. So no one goes to hell because they're forced, forced to go to hell. They go to hell because they have refused to accept the free gift of eternal life and the sacrifice of Jesus, God's son, for their sins. That is why it is not by God. And all of us are part of that. You say, well, innocent people were killed. Because I read about that, I think, men, women, and children, and you think they're innocent people. And the truth is, there is no one innocent. All of us are sinners. The Bible says, therefore, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us are guilty. We're, in two ways, I say that we're guilty. One is by birth, because we are born sinners. We inherited it. And we're also sinners by choice. We have chosen to rebel against God, to sin against God, and the consequence of all sin is death. And so it paints a pretty bleak picture. But when you think about this with, with, uh, with Jesus coming to this place and looking on the city and, and grieving over what he sees, it's because he cares about every single soul, every single life in that city. You know, I think many times I talk to my father-in-law and before he passed away, he would say, you know, I pray every day that not one of my children 
one of my grandchildren, not one of my great-grandchildren will be lost. That everyone will be safe in the fold when it's all over. And he would never say that without just tearing up because he cared genuinely about the souls of every one of his families, family members. And, and this is Jesus. He doesn't just care about the physical magnificence of the city because it's, it's a wonder of the world. It's a beautiful city. Uh, in, in Solomon's time, in David's time, it was, it was even more magnificent. It's not just that physical structure. It is, it is the people who were being destroyed in judgment by the Romans that he was weeping for. And then finally, he was weeping for the cost of redemption. Their physical suffering, their blindness and unbelief, the total destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But then finally, he's weeping, I believe, as we're, we're kind of looking forward in this story, to what redemption, what salvation, and what deliverance would cost. We say that salvation is a free gift, that heaven is free, and that's true, but it's not because it was cheap. Someone had to pay a price, and Jesus knew what that would be. The timeline of this week, we have the triumphal entry on Sunday. On Wednesday, we, we have Jesus gathering together with his disciples Thursday night. He's in the upper room celebrating the Passover. And the Passover is, is an incredible time because when you say Passover, what do you mean? Well, you go all the way back to when Israel was, was in Egypt and being delivered. And God said he brought a series of judgments and there was no repentance. And he said, I'm bringing one final judgment. I, I'm going to, the angel of death will go across the land of Egypt and every firstborn will be slain. But if you take a lamb and take the, uh, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood and put the blood on the doorposts, the top and the two sides, said, the angel will pass over you and no one will be harmed. Well, that blood of the lamb is the lamb of God. That is Jesus, the depiction picture of Jesus to come. And the top and two sides of the doorpost is a perfect cross that we recognize today. And so every year, the biggest celebration of the year, the biggest celebration of the year, they don't get it. They don't get it that this is the lamb. This is Jesus. He is the one who must die, must be slain, to provide salvation. For God, it cost him his one and only son. For Jesus, physical pain and suffering, rejection by the people, he came to deliver, mocking, desertion, denial. And then it says he became sin. He became sin. And I think this is when we read about in the Garden of Gethsemane that he, he was agonizing in prayer and it says as, as sweat drops of blood would drop from him because of the intense agony of this, that he would become sin, all the sin of the world on him and he becomes sin. And then on the cross, God would pour his wrath and all of his righteous justice on his son and judge that sin. God would turn away. He'd say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the pain of that estrangement temporarily, the pain of becoming sin, the pain of rejection, the pain of this cost. When you think of this, it's hard to even imagine. But this is, this is what has caused this internal grief. While the external celebration is incredible, internally he is sobbing. The physical suffering of people, the spiritual blindness, the temple destruction and decimation of all these people that would be dying. And then that he, the knowledge that he would become sin and God would turn his face away and he would bear the sin of the world. And yet, and this I come to the conclusion of this, to me, the most exciting part, because it's kind of depressing. It's kind of discouraging when you think about it, but you, but you have to walk through this to get to, to the glory and the excitement of the resurrection. But I think of this next week with Easter, these words, resurrection, rescue, return, and rejoicing. Resurrection, death is conquered. Sin has been conquered on the cross, and death is conquered at the resurrection. Rescue. In doing this, he has rescued every sin and sinful person in the world. Return, he will come back and take us to heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. So no matter how bad this world gets, no how many diseases will plague us, the hope is great to be with him. And the final word, rejoicing, the celebration. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Keep your eyes on Jesus, who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So even in his grief, and even in his tears, and even in his sorrow, and even in his pain, there was an internal joy set before him of redeeming man, of pleasing his Father, and of finishing that work. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Isn't that amazing? When we go forth weeping, we return rejoicing. So my challenge to you as we wrap this up, as you look around this world right now, there's a lot of suffering going on, a lot of suffering. Learn to share in his sorrows, the sorrows of Jesus, that you can learn to share in his joy. Learn to share in his sorrows and his pain, that you can learn to share in his joy. And next week, the most exciting day of the year, we celebrate when Jesus rises again and offers to all the gift of eternal life. Father in heaven, May you take your words and encourage our hearts, though heavy when we read about Jesus weeping over his people. We see your heart, we see your compassion, we see your love, and we see what you've done for us. May we share in your suffering. May we share in your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.